Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's episode with uh, the two of us talking about inspiring leadership issues. And this one is on health and well-being, particularly what we eat and how we exercise and move. But before we go into that, I just want to acknowledge that as Graham and I are recording this, um, we've just had the state funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. And so for some people around the world who are listening, it may not be that important, but for the billions who did watch, it, it is a very poignant moment. And the way it was done, as General the Lord Dannett, who was on episode 200, do listen to him, wrote a lovely article, which I've put on LinkedIn, please have a listen uh, or a read of it, about all the people who were involved in making it such a success. And thank goodness to all the work that went on. There were no terrorist attacks. There was no disasters. No one was stabbed. No one was injured. All the heads of states of all these countries from all over the world came. It was a great melting pot of of countries respecting one individual inspiring leader for the way she queen elizabeth behaved and and i still find it how massively inspiring graham and i've talked about her being an inspiring leader for so many people whether you're a royalist or a republican you cannot doubt that the way she held herself was an example to us all so i just want to acknowledge that one uh, Graham, great to have you on the show. Uh, Graham Brown uh, from Pigal. And Graham, you have got so much wealth and experience. It's lovely having you on the series. I, I always love chatting. And we're chatting about a topic which is, of course, key to you. It's um, health and well-being. It's um, eating and moving. So, Graham, tell us a little bit about why it's important to you. Yeah, wonderful to be here. And I like the tributes that you've been posting on LinkedIn to the Queen as well. Very touching and fitting and very tasteful. So I think that's a nice bridge into what we're talking about today because you and I were both born when there was a Queen, Queen Elizabeth, and we've known nothing else. You know, that's always, been, she's been like a permanent figure since all our lives, always there. And there's always kind of, when you're a kid, you, you, don't really think about that. It's just sort of a fixture, isn't it, in your life, the queen. You never knew who was before, and you never thought about what came after. And in a way, that sort of sinks into health because, you know, that's something that touches all of us, death at some point in our lives, and somebody close to us passes away. And that whole, that mirage of permanence is blown away, isn't it? You know, whether you lose a parent or a loved one, whoever it may be, you, you thought was always going to be there. And then suddenly they're not. You're just kind of living your life as if that was going to go on forever. And then bam. And there's always pain. But I think, you know, as um, Ray Dalio says, like pain plus reflection equals progress. And really the great teaching moments in all of that is how do we take that away and learn from it? And I think for you and I, both the sort of early adopters of both gadgets and ideas, we seek out truths in health and 
life as well. And a big part of that is understanding that we are not permanent, but actually our health's not permanent and we could be gone at any time. So very much, I guess we both are explorers in this space. Mm, mm. You know, and that's kind of the fascination. There's a lot of experiments I'm sure we'll share with them today. That not, nothing is permanent, so we might as well enjoy the ride, but make it a good one. Yeah, and, and when we were talking earlier, I love, Graham, the fact you were saying about that the Queen was 96 when she mm. died. You know, she met Liz Truss a couple of days before she died. She she had that sense of duty, and she had something in, in, in was it April, May? She had her mm-hmm. platinum ju- jubilee, and she was there smiling, and, you know, clearly there were moments when she had to, but she had that sense of, I'm going to carry on and do it. And yeah. I'm certain that she went up to Balmoral to to spend her knowing she was about to die to spend her last few months there so Mm. she could pay tribute to scotland and be put in in state in scotland with the archers friends of mine uh one of a couple of them are archers and her personal bodyguard at balmoral and they said it was so poignant standing there on guard Mm. at night over her coffin and uh, it meant the world to them and she meant the world to them because of Mm. who she was and i think there's a, a real swing from you know let's go independence a lot of people are going actually i do like being part of of this whole great britain uh mm. institution everybody can have a president that people elect and who's political but to have someone who is thinks long term beyond just mm. winning this election for a year or two and doing something that's short term to do things for the long term i think that was her final gesture was to go mm. i care about the union and I want it to survive, and therefore I will die here in Scotland, and they will they will celebrate what it means to have a royal family in Scotland as much because of the union of the British crown and the the, the English crown, the Scottish crown, back with James the um, second. I think it's fascinating. So she gave us an example about health and well-being. She got a ninety-six, and her husband, Duke of Edinburgh, ninety-nine. 99 i mean yeah. doesn't happen i think you, you said to me it doesn't happen by accident does it no how do they think, live that long well i'm fascinated by this idea of longevity and life expectancy and i would like i'm looking forward to your thoughts on this tonight as well and, and also the the listener comments about that there's so much research done on what contributes to a long healthy life and actually we don't really know a lot of the answers we only kind of know parts of it and obviously science is helping us piece that puzzle together but like what we thought were the key factors in long life fitness for example Mm. health is a moving target as well it's not what we knew it and especially in the old days what we thought were healthy people today there's so much emphasis placed on new factors, macros, which we'll talk about, I guess, like mental health, how important that is in long life. And then you go back to Queen Elizabeth as an example, just having that duty, that duty to do work and get up and do something every day, that can keep somebody alive and healthy for 20, 30 years, well after retirement. You see people, you know, they retire, they fade because mm. they not only lose that purpose that kept them going, and the movement that comes with working, you know, just that act of getting up, getting on the train, going to work, walking up the flight of stairs and all that. But lastly, the social aspect of work, you know, most of our friends come from the workplace, right? And when you retire, you lose a lot of that. So 
in a way, staying working. I know for a lot of people, they have this vision of get to 65, retire. But actually, that might not be a good idea. Working may just keep us alive and healthy for mm. our, you know, the last 20, 30 years of our life. I, I think you are spot on. And I'm going to find ways to carry on as long as I can doing these podcasts. Um, we're up at about episode 250. And, and, and I think I find the stimulus this is why I so enjoy working with you, Graham, is because you bring different ideas and different perspectives. It keeps my mind active. And this idea of eat, move, sleep, breathe, focus, prosper. They're, they're all the kind of things I did a fascinating course with Brian Johnson uh, in California and uh, with a whole lot of coaches around the world and, and all the stoic studies and best practice of what goes on. And, and you and I were, were laughing. I've got here for those on the, on the, on the YouTube. You can see a, a collection <laughs> He's got a of, pile of about 10 books. If you're listening, a pile, a pile of about 10, 10 books. and they and, all look quite new as well. So yeah, they, they, he's um, gone through a, a buying splurge of health right. books, but I must, I must <laughs> confess, I have actually read them. And, and also then there's about 20 audio books that I've listened to yeah. on this topic. So I think it's really got me interested. Um, I, it's lucky that my brother, Graham, um, uh, is a uh, just retired as the, uh, the the president of the British Plastic Surgeon. I'm very proud of Graham. But gave me this huge book on cancer, um, right. the the uh, Emperor of All Maladies, um, by a guy who did all the research through, which gets us now down to slash, burn, and poison as the mm. the very archaic approaches to dealing with cancer. And um, but but the history of it all, I found it really interesting. But my easiest way, as you know, is being dyslexic, is I found that book was just way too thick. So I listened to it and, you know, mm. many hours of listening. So it, it has become a, a, a complete fascination to me. What's that saying that the average person around the world uh, in our kind of sort of business network reads about one nonfiction book a year on average? Yeah. And so if you read two or three, you're an expert. And yeah. having read, you know, 30 you're elite. Them, you're, you're in the top 5%. Yeah, you right. can lift more than two books a year. Uh, but then there's the, the other League. the other viewpoint, which is take one book and keep studying it, pulling it apart <laughs> for the whole year, uh, yeah. which is a guy I'm talking to who's, a, again, a podcast himself. I'm going to chat with him later on today about uh, we're going to do a podcast later on. Uh, he just is advising one book a year. I, I think mm. I get very, my attention span would get a bit dry on that one. No, you, you've got um, to feed yourself with new stimuli, it, it, haven't you? And yeah. not be afraid. When a book gets hard going, put it down and leave it because you rarely go back to it. Correct. Start, think, start another don't, book. Don't plow on in a book yeah. that's really grim and you don't enjoy it and, you know, just let it go. So let's take um, uh, questions. Um, from, yeah, let's do it. Uh, the last episode they, they sent in. We have uh, Scott from Grantham. Um Scott asks us, could you ask uh, the two of us what advice on physical and mental health we would give to our younger selves? What mm. advice on physical and mental health? If we went back, Graham, and you and I, uh, you're uh, 50 and I'm 60. And yeah. if we went back and met ourselves aged 18, what advice Blimey. would you give to the younger Graham? Mm. That's interesting about health specifically. Mm. our viewpoint on health at 18 was probably very different i i'm imagining for you and for me it was probably very focused on fitness mm. you know it health was fitness it was you know not just 
building yourself up because you were once a teen and now you're becoming a man and putting on muscle. But also, you know, that sort of very masculine health, you know, the very yang part of the yin yang, if you like, that part of energy. I think that's what it was. So, I mean, if I was advising myself, would I listen to a 50 year old man <laughs> when it comes to health advice? I would say, you know, the probably the part that I could have benefited from was maybe thinking about my mental health at a younger age because you know Jonathan you and I if we were to go back 30 40 years to that age people didn't talk about those things it was man up especially you know sure in the army as well that was the last thing that you could talk about so I'm not sure what useful advice I could have given but I think maybe just to say it's okay to be not okay you know it's okay to be you know seriously stressed or you know unhappy it's okay to accept it and then deal with it and talk about it right so i think that's the recognition of it that's what i would say just to reassure myself that actually um what you're feeling is not um you know it's not a symptom of, of a dysfunctional body it's something that you can fix and deal with because any 18 year old i'm sure it hasn't got it all worked out at that age what about yourself jonathan yeah it's a, it's a really great question that scott asked i think I, I think it's the it's the integration as opposed to the disintegration it's almost like a our mm -hmm. inspiring leadership compass with the elements we're going around if you get them all covered you're going to be a high performer in life and uh in your own uh, your own work but if bits are missing you're disintegrated you're, you're not together and and that's why eat move sleep breathe focus prosper it is all together if you don't do some of the bits mm. i would say to my 18 year old self look try and get it all together the problem is being a, a, an over anxious overachiever very intense all my life whatever i get stuck in you know I get worrying about the worrying or whatever it might be, um is that I, i'd need to just to chill out a bit i think on the mental mm. health side I often worried what others thought or was I good enough or mm. imposter syndrome or I, I'm, I don't know enough or other people seem cleverer than me um, or very enthusiastic about things. Or when I think about, you know, because I was 18, I was, as you said, just joined. I'd gone to the Royal Military Academy, Santhurst. I was learned to be a young officer in the British Army and, and very proud to have got in. It was a tough selection and tough, always constant being selected, whatever it was, whether it's doing airborne training and getting my parachute wings and my rear barrier, mm. they, were, they were always selection for something else or getting into staff college or coming out of stuff. Um, but I think the eat, if I look back, I probably ate some pretty poor quality food and didn't think so much about the balance of what I know now and nutritions and supplements. Um, so I think, yeah, you know, the, the junk food and that kind of stuff and all the, the pizzas and the bread and that kind of stuff. So eating, I, I would have probably slightly been taking advice on eating better. Moving, I, I did a lot of running, hmm. but I, I never built up my body. There were other guys who were much bulkier, very more muscular. And I think I probably would have tried to have a bit more of a balance in the sort of like the, the hit training. So I wasn't just a, a racing snake, long distance run, a little little skinny thing. Mountain like, goat. Running, running up the hills. Um, yeah. And also to be aware in the marathons I was doing at that stage in the distance running, that there was inflammation associated with yeah. really long distance. And, and, and that's why it took me a long time to recover. So sleep, I didn't, because the army was the machismo, as you were saying, uh, Graham, was that 
you know, sleep is, you can sleep when you're dead. Sleep's yeah, for wimps. Sleep's for wimps, yeah. Sleep's for wimps. And, and that was so wrong. And I, I, I think my performance, my mental performance, even my mental health was mm. the army constantly uh, stressed you to get by on, you know, mm. guard duty on three hours sleep. And come on, what's the problem with you? And you, you're, you're nodding Wet off. Clothes. Uh, that's yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and deliberately... You know, mm. look at SEAL training, deliberately sleep depriving you. But it, it makes you almost hallucinate. It's not yeah. good. There's nothing good about it. Yes, I know in war you've got to get by on it, but you can't train yourself not to have enough sleep. You mm. Every day you begin again. You need to get enough sleep. Yeah. Um, but it's changed, sleep. hasn't it? I mean, the whole sort of zeitgeist of philosophy about fitness and health has changed in 30, 40 years. There's so like, even when you look at athletics and we're both endurance fans and dabbled as you say with marathons and ironmans and so on that now there's so much focus on recovery that's such an important part of the whole process in fact it's probably more important than the actual exercise recovery is like you know it's without recovery you can't build muscle you can't build you know endurance so that's a big part of it and you know you apply that to the whole holistic part of health and fitness and in fact i think you know the whole philosophy about improving health and fitness has changed in that now it's about more minimum effective dose it's not about you know even in running you don't go out and do junk miles anymore people would go out and do 40 50 extra miles every week just to top it up but if you look at pros now i mean if you look at people competing elite athletes they'll actually do less because they know it's about doing the technical training. They go out and do like, you know, 20 minutes of power lifting or like 15 minutes of high impact training on the treadmill. And they're probably doing a lot less volume. So that's, that's changed a lot. It's a lot more technical now. I think the whole approach rather than just putting in the hours and, you know, doing 200 miles runs every week. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think about my time, I was I doing the Cypress double mountain marathon and we'll talk about some of your amazing achievements, but I, I just, my, my diet for training for that or the Nicosia marathon was just to keep running miles and miles and miles. And there was, a, a, I, so I, we did I, it. I got a book and, and it was telling me build or, you know, begin by doing five miles and, and then six and then seven. And then before the marathon, you've got up to doing, you know, you'd actually do a marathon before you did the yeah. marathon. They would um, never do that, that anymore. Oh, yeah. No. What was I thinking of? They would um, never do that now. No, I, I think it is interesting. And, so really linked to this because there's so much we can talk about because mm. we're both passionate about this the other the other um guest questioner was a seer from america asked uh, how do i prioritize nutrition exercise and work so this this was like work life integration mm. rather than work life balance because there is no such yeah, thing I like that. balance well if integration but how do you integrate nutrition exercise with work what, what's mm. been your what, what have you done graham let's just you know, I've done everything. Yeah. <laughs> I've tried it all. What, what, what works you want... for you? What works for you? Uh, I think like you, I've experimented with every single hack and way of, you know, squeezing in, you know, better nutrition into my day. And it's just trying to work out what works. And I don't think everything does work for you. And what you may read in one book won't work for you, like their way of doing things. So I think you have to experiment and find something that works for you. And it has to be, I find, for example, it's got to be something that you can do every single day without thinking. That's what really works. Mm. So for example, um, going out, like myself, going out, 10 o'clock in the morning, going for a bike ride for an hour. 
I don't have to think about it. I don't have to get myself to the gym. I just get my, you know, cycling shorts on and my shirt and then get in the elevator, go down to the basement and get on the bike. And then, you know, okay, I'll think about where I'm going to go later. So in terms of the fitness and health side, that really works for me because it's not, I don't have to plan something. I don't have to, you know, on Monday I do legs, Wednesday I do arms. And decision fatigue is real for leaders, I feel. The biggest problem with nutrition and fitness and health is making decisions. You have to have something which you can just do almost as if it's part of your autonomous nervous system every single day. And you've got to apply that as well to food. You know, what are the things that you can just make or eat on a daily basis, which you don't have to decide. If you're having to decide about food every single day, you can do it for a month, but I bet you after a month, you're, when you, you got bored of that app, you know, and your spreadsheets, the thing falls apart and you're back to pizza or whatever. Yeah. That's my feeling. I mean, yeah. maybe if you have a stronger resolve, it might work, but yeah. I doubt yeah. people can yeah. do that long-term. What about you, you Jonathan? You're so right. And um, I, about two weeks ago, I got over about three weeks worth of uh, COVID-19. I had never had it before. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I had it bad for two or three days uh, and, and my aura ring picked it all up. It saw the uh, elevation in body temperature at night, the increase in heart rate, the lowering heart rate variance. And, and that's another thing that you and I are fascinated in, that the data that comes with it. You know, I'm charging up my Apple Watch at the moment, otherwise it'd be on my wrist. I'm, I'm getting the data so I know what it is. But as we laughed about, you can be obsessive about the data. And some people have to... I, I had a whoop strap, which is another bit of kit. I gave a it up after W H O O P, and it's like a, a wristband, and it picked up all the heart rate variance and sleep and that kind of thing. Right, right. But but I became so obsessed by the data that it almost stressed me out. Like, yeah. have I slept? Oh no, I haven't right, slept. Right, I must right. do better. And so it became sort of self-reinforcing, over-anxious, overachiever again. Um, but I, I think it is interesting that they talked about the hacks and and there are some hacks, but generally mm. it's the law of the harvest and the law of the harvest, you know, that Covey in his books, you know, you've got to plant it, you've got to water it all through the yeah. year and fertilize it and the rest. And then it will come to harvest time and you'll wait time and then you'll mm. be able to gather it. But you can't just plant it all and the next day expect it to pop up mm. with a with a pill. And, and I found, as you've done, that Atomic Habits by James Cleal is a great book, yeah. this idea of making the good habits as easy as possible so i found i mentioned the covid because i found with covid obviously it wiped me out during the time i was ill and i i mm. i tried too early about seven days after i'd had it to go back into the gym and i think i did some rowing i did five kilometers rowing on my rowing machine well it just wiped me out for about three days i just thought i'm not yeah. ready yet and so it's back to your very good point about recovery absolutely uh, we've got a so so my routine and you're right routine is all and mm. so so what works for me i'm very disciplined about a routine so i'll i'll wake up 7 30 my time i'll write my my morning journal which is good for the mental health which is the daily uh, five minute journal.com so what i'm gonna what i'm grateful for what i'm gonna focus on the day who i am so my identity and then i will go up do some of the the morning ablutions and bits and pieces and and uh and then I might do some yoga and some stretching for quick five minutes. And then it either will be yoga or it will be some hit training or it will be some rowing. But you're right. If you know on a certain day you do a certain thing, 
Tuesdays mm. for me and Thursdays was doing 10,000 meters on the rowing machine. Um, Sunday, personal trainer comes and trains Lee and myself for an hour, mm. really heavy hit training. And then yoga on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. But if you, it, with the COVID, it, it got blown up because it wasn't happening like that. And I'm, I haven't quite got back into it of the habit I've been doing for four years. And, you should be more forgiving of yourself as well. That's the thing. That's your ambitious self. I've got to get back into it. When actually, you probably will do a lot better. Like, you know that, right? That's like the two of the duality in your brain. You know that sensible you, but then there's ambitious you. It's like, I've got to get back in. I'm losing. I missed a week. I dropped a week of training. But actually, a week of training is not going to make a lot of difference in the grand scheme of things. Very good point. And that's where... On the Aura app, I love the three things it has. And by the way, I'm not sponsored by Aura. I should be. Come on, Aura, sponsor me. Yeah. Um, yes, right. We want more of that. Um, readiness for the for the day when I wake up, my sleep, and the activity I've done the day before uh, as percentiles. And it's really good when I've not had good sleep or I mm. trained too hard the day before. Well, one day just completely overdid it, gardening massively, mowing a lot. And, and it just went, what the heck were you doing? Does it tell you to ease up? Does it give you like a, it just does? Says, oh, great. you got a low score. you got like 65%. Go Heart easy rate. today. Yeah. Go easy today. You, you, yeah. you work too hard. You need a day of recovery, which yeah. is, I find very helpful. It's almost like a bit of a AI sort of. Absolutely. Yeah. you got a, you got a trainer, but that's, you see that in professional sports, like in premier league football, for example, they're all very much, I mean, every sport now data driven, they actually can identify when a player's going to get injured before they get injured. Mm. Just by, like you say, that with the, the, you know, the leading indicators, if you like, yeah. are quantifying your health. So that has had a major impact on the, you know, the fitness and the health of players as well, as you can take a little bit of that data and that technology and use it on yourself. If you do it properly, rather than use it to police yourself, which is obviously, we have to be something mindful of, right? Yeah, and I, I think that's that's interesting, uh, using that data. And I think many of our listeners are CEOs and managing directors and um, leaders of, of, of sizable numbers of people or individual entrepreneurs, whatever it might be, working, living on their own or they're in the military, quite a number of them are in the military. Mm. And they're thinking about, as the, as the questioner from America asks, how do I prioritize nutrition, exercise, and work? Yeah. And, and I love that analogy of being a corporate athlete. I think it was a Harvard article 20 years ago, the corporate athlete. And, and it, if we're gonna be a high performer, this is why I like this idea of the Inspiring Institute Compass, which uh, Lee and I, um, you know, done so much research about it is that if you get all these bits right, and particularly your health and well-being, hmm. then your performance, good sleep, which we'll come on to in our next episode, but, but good sleep, you know, if you, the difference between, you know, five and a half hours sleep and eight hours of sleep is 30% performance in the day Absolutely, yeah. as a business athlete. So like, I know when I've not had enough sleep or not enough deep sleep, I, I know just, just not thinking clear enough. The, you know, yeah. the executive function, the front part of the brain, the, left and right ventral lateral prefrontal cortex so that higher order thinking is just it's just a bit shot through because most of the blood is going to the amygdala the mm. freeze flight fight what do you think about this this prioritization of nutrition exercise yeah absolutely i i, I find that you know you talked about work-life balance at the beginning and that is seems to be people are challenging that idea generally that there isn't really a, the balance is yourself internally, and it's trying to integrate all of these aspects. So 
it, even in, for example, like fitness and work shouldn't really be somehow like horse traded throughout the week, you know, that, okay, I've got to take time off work to do this. That's really important, you know, to look at how can you maintain fitness, mental health, health generally, good diet and work all within the same package. And a big part of that, I mean, small things like you and I are both standing doing this podcast, right? Mm. And those things may be small touches, but actually they may contribute because you're standing a lot of the day to your overall health and fitness. Example being, you know, that a lot of studies have been done on comparing the health and fitness of people who go to the gym and then do the, you know, the big intense cathartic workout versus, for example, waiters. You know, a waiter spends most of his or her time on his or her feet and is moving around and, you know, is often moving fast and is busy and constantly using their brain. And they found that the waiters generally had a higher fitness level than those who went to the gym once or twice a week and just blew it out, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think the answer to the question lies somewhat in that, is that actually it's the overall macro look at your health and movement and, uh, you know, general well-being during the day that's going to have a longer and bigger impact on your life um, as opposed to, you know, just going and, you know, powering out in the gym once a week. So that may help you a little bit with your, yeah, you know, your strength and your power ratios, but health probably not affected. It's what you're doing day in, day out, minute in, minute out. That's where health is defined. Yeah. And I think if we go back to Queen Elizabeth and, and uh, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, they were always out walking. They were out in the, the yeah. Scottish Highlands or around Sandringham or whatever, or meeting lots of people. The lots meeting of the people, yeah, yeah. The social side is very important. You were talking about this. I mean, you you went and uh, you've travelled the world, lived in so many different countries. Would you just perhaps share a bit about your interest in this whole idea? I know of blue zones and yeah. why people lived longer in. You were lived in Okinawa, which was one of the yeah. amazing, one of the biggest, places. yeah. Uh, and also the Mediterranean as well. You know, what is it's many things, but I think you said social, the social side is very important, isn't it? Very much, Jonathan. You've identified, I mean, the link with the Queen is probably uh, quite profound there because it's that social, not just being around people, but being challenged to think. So if you're meeting people, you're also being challenged mentally to, you know, perform in a very positive way, you have to talk to that person, you have to think about that person, and you get inspired by people. And you know, you have to be physically active. And you know, the Queen's not just kind of sitting in her armchair meeting people and waving them by, she's standing and shaking hands with people. Mm. So there's a point about the blue zones. I mean, I've lived in Japan, specifically in Okinawa as well, the island in right out towards Taiwan, which has some of the highest concentrations of centenarians in the world. And I've seen them, <laughs> these old ladies, you know, they're hundreds and they're sort of, they're a bit bent over, you know, they look like they're carrying a big bundle of sticks. They're bent over, but they're active and moving around. And I've lived in Spain, which I'm just looking at the data here. So if you look at life expectancy in the world, looking at the latest data here, Japan's number two, 85 years average. And Hong Kong's number one, by the way, 85.3. And then Singapore, where I live now, is number five, which is 84, and then Spain's number seven, 84 again, life expectancy, which is actually quite high as an average, if you think about it. So the three of the 10 longest living societies in the world, and what I found is, and a lot of focus has been on diet. I think it's a small part of it. 
because the, the diet here in Singapore is not particularly healthy. A lot of, you know, like processed food, it's an island that tends to be a problem with islands as well. A lot of imported food. Um, but it's the bigger macros. There's a lot of safety. Healthcare systems are very good in all three. And then there's that social sense of belonging, which comes into that duty part, which I think is so powerful. Like the thing is about, if you go to Okinawa, you see old people sort of gathering around, playing games, you know, like balls or whatever the equivalent is, or just sitting around chatting or looking after the grandkids, you know, like not in, in the house, but they'd be out in the communal area running around and they'd be like talking to all the other parents and so on, grandparents, great grandparents. I feel that's a big part of it, the social aspect. And you know what? A lot of studies have been done about what happens to individuals when you're deprived of social contact. Mm. And that actually the brain function disintegrates, you know, get put in solitary confinement. The brain actually disintegrates. It loses its capabilities and health disintegrates as well. So I think social is probably underpinning why these blue zones are so important. They teach us a lesson, yes, Food is important, but probably the longest and most important impact on your health long time, long term is, is do you have an active social life? Are you challenging yourself? Mm. You know, no. and I think that's that you sort of retreat as you get older, don't you? By, by sort of default. So how do you fight that? That's the kind of challenge, isn't it? Mm. I, I think you're so right. And, and I'm an extroverted introvert. So I think at, at the heart, I'm introverted, but but I do enjoy things like our interaction here or if I'm doing anything with a team or I'm going to go and speak on my father's uh, ship, HMS Belfast, on the 28th of September. I'm really proud of doing that in the ship he, he uh, sailed on as a midshipman back in 1953 when he got a commission from Her Majesty the Queen. She had just wow. come on the throne she's and still she, around, signed, she, signed, uh, she signed his commission as a naval officer. And then obviously she signed mine in 1981 when I got, became an army officer. So she must have been pretty young when she did that. She was Your 21. Father. She was 21. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. amazing. But uh, you touched on some really interesting uh, aspects because it, it's all interwoven. And, mm. and, and this is the point I think we were saying to that prioritization of nutrition, exercise and work, that, that you need the stimulating work. And, and as we talked in our, in our earlier episode about, well, the very first episode after we did an overview about your moral quotient, your integrity, your values, what you will and won't do. Then the second episode, or rather the third episode, was about meaning and purpose. And, and many of the people you met in these different countries had a real sense of meaning and purpose and mm -hmm. family. So I'm really thrilled that we've got four children who by next summer will all be in some kind of long-term relationship after many years with their partners. And, and a couple of them, uh, well, one of them's got two children, so we've two grandchildren. I'm looking forward to spending time with children right. and grandchildren as I get older, but I also want to keep doing something which stimulates my mind, meeting different people, advising, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And then I think the diet is such a, a key part. I, you and I have talked about this. I mean, here we are with our drinks. What have I got? I've got uh, kombucha, uh, <laughs> fermented tea, um, the, the four Ks, isn't it? It's kefir, kombucha, uh, kraut, sauerkraut, and uh, kimchi, I think it is. I've forgotten what it is. But anyway, th those are all very good for the gut. And, and, and all Enzymes, the, yeah. the, the research that's gone on, it's just mm. exploded about the gut microbiome and about um, longevity. 
Uh, it's really, I mean, one of my books here, Dr. Mark Hyman, Food Fix, which people can't see, but I enjoyed that very much listening to that. And, and I've got a copy here and How Not to Die by Dr. Michael Greger. We can talk about books. Oh, like that's good. Yeah. And the cookbook that goes with it. I have and, the, to say. and the cookbook with your friend. <laughs> but but they're all talking about this, this idea of in, the benefit of intermittent fasting, which I've been doing mm. now for oh, about yeah. six years. Um, you and I tried vegan. I think we both did it for a period of time, mm. about a year. I, I have days where I'm vegan and days when I like a bit of chicken or fish as well or some eggs. Um, but the very interesting one, and most of them are, are starting to say, we're spending so many billions on healthcare systems, whether mm. it's Singapore or America or Australia, wherever you might be, or the UK, um, which are creaking yeah. under the weight of the obesity epidemic and, and the awful junk food that big, big food is pushing towards us, which makes them billions, but mm. costs the healthcare system billions. And, and, and it's this idea of moving upstream rather than dealing with us when we are obese and we've got mm. Alzheimer's and all this, which is actually called type three um, diabetes. Alzheimer's, yes, because it's problem, related to plaque, isn't it? Correct. Uh, brain, brain plaques and, and various mm. things that are going on and, and uh, tangles in the brain. Um, I think it's very interesting. Let's spend more money and more research going upstream so that what you do in eating and moving and sleeping and breathing and focus and prosper will mm. prevent you becoming then a, uh, one of the numbers of people in a bed or in a nursing home because you didn't do the right things years ago. Yeah, that, that's been around for a while, that, that line of thought. I think it was, um, you know, even Anuri Bevan, who founded the National Health Service, was saying that after a few years, they wouldn't need the NHS anymore because it would have fixed everybody. Oh, well. And that obviously didn't happen. The degenerative disease crisis that we're facing, like what you've mentioned, is very much a factor of our society, isn't it? And it's not just a fact. I can't think you just tackle it with food. And in particular, not what we eat, but also how we eat, I think is probably as important as the actual physical nature of what we're consuming, right? We can look to, there's been a lot of research done on obviously food and nutrition and longevity. There's a great book called In Defense of Food by Michael Pollan. Yes. Which I recommend, yeah. which basically concludes that the answer is to eat more food, which is really strange. You think well, that's a bit trite as an answer, but it's very powerful because actually what he's saying is a lot of what we do eat isn't food. It's actually processed or manufactured or extracted from its original form. And therefore, if you were to go to France, where they consume a lot of dairy food, for example, which is considered unhealthy in the traditional, you know, like school of thought, you will actually find very little obesity. And that's fascinating, isn't it? Is that why is that? Because they do seem to eat all the wrong things. But mm. the point is probably how they eat. It's not just a fact of consuming high glycemic index foods or you know carbohydrates or sugar but also the fact that they, when they do eat this stuff you know the, the pastries and whatever they're consuming it with something else and over a long period of time you know sat down and eating it with friends maybe and that has a big impact on how we absorb sugar in the system and that mm. obviously impacts diabetes so i think there's a lot we're learning about the macro of all of health it's not like you say, everything from the bacteria to how we're actually eating, not just looking at the labels. We can't, that's not where you define health in looking at the 
you know, the carbohydrate, fat and protein content of what we're eating. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think you're touching on some very interesting things and just picking up on that. Michael Pollan, yeah, very respected. I think if people are trying to find some good people, Michael Pollan, Mark Hyman has the Doctor's Pharmacy podcast, which is well mm. worth listening to. Um, the, there's a, a, an Australian, I'm trying to think of his name, Sinclair, uh, Professor Sinclair, who's looking into longevity and NMN and resveratrol and things like that, which I take as supplements mm. now to for longevity. But um, Michael Pollan's little mantra was, I think it was, eat real food, mm. mainly plants, not yeah, too much. Right. <laughs> real food. So, so in other words, if someone has to put a white hat on and a coat to make your food in a factory, yeah. that's not what you should be eating. You know, yeah. highly processed, uh, flour-based, or sugar-based foods ain't good for you. And in a, a nice mix of plants and and uh, and fruits. A little bit of meat, maybe, low protein, yeah. And, you know, in, in that book, I don't know if you remember, Jonathan, there's a really fascinating section in that book about poor Marge, talking about margarine. And I never knew that they made, when they make margarine, margarine's just made out of some weird sort of transmogrified fat. I don't know what it is exactly. And margarine is this sort of Franken food, if you like. Mm-hmm. I'm sure if you have any margarine manufacturers out there, they might get a bit pissed off with me saying that. But the point is that they actually, when it's made, it's not, it's colorless. It's almost like a very pale liquid and they make it yellow so that they make it look like, you know, what we're used to eating, butter, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a good example. You know, margarine was for many years, you remember in the 80s, like high in polyunsaturates. Mm. You know, the good fats, it was always marketed to us as good for your heart, when actually it's probably a lot less healthy to us than good old-fashioned butter. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's so interesting. Uh, Again, Mark Hyman, Dr. Mark Hyman's quite interesting. He goes, look at the ingredients list, all right? If Mm. you've got a bag of something, and if it has loads of stuff on there, you don't understand, you can't even pronounce half of it, and it's got more than about two ingredients, you really shouldn't be eating it because it's been manufactured and had lots of stuff added to it. And these food scientists trying to make stuff that's not good for you, try and make it seem like it tastes good because it's, you know, it's not good for you. You've always got to watch that. Broccoli doesn't have an ingredients list on it, right? Yeah. Broccoli, all right? (laughs) Most people don't know what it is, though. That's the problem. But there's no big super food company going, I'm going to do some marketing for broccoli and why it's good for you. No, if they're selling it on TV, you know it's not good for you because they're trying to sell it to you, pizzas and all this kind of stuff. Anyway. Yeah. I think if it doesn't mold, Jonathan, if you put it out and you leave it, if it doesn't mold, something's wrong with it. Don't eat it. If it molds, the longer the shelf life, the longer the shelf life, the shorter your life. Yeah. There you go. You can get it all today. Yeah. And and one of the things that you and I were talking about before was shamanic medicine. I, right. I was very taken, obviously, with my time in Peru and uh, your study and mine of sort of Buddhism and things like that, that for the for the Buddhists and for the shamanic approach, there's only one illness. But mm. in Western medicine, there's at least 155,000 illnesses with man- multiple different cures, at least that. But the mm. one illness in shamanic medicine is your disconnection from your life purpose. As you've been saying earlier, your community your yeah. soul's journey and the environment and nature. And so there's one illness and one cure. And the cure is reconnection to your calling, mm. purpose and meaning, PQ, 
your nature and your spirit, that sense of belonging, that uh, emotional intelligence. What's, what's your thoughts on that? I think yeah, I like that. Simplifying it. Yeah. We, there, there's so much illness and sickness that's generated from a very early age about repressing ideas and thoughts and disconnect. And obviously that expresses itself as stress, anger, all the kind of negative emotions that we feel and experience on a daily basis, you know, that affects our relationships. Yeah. To simplify that is obviously the goal. It's a lot harder done than said. So the mission in life then is to find that and reconnect. And I guess it's not perfect, is it? It's always work in progress. Like every day, am I getting better at this? Am I reconnecting better? You know, like health itself, it's like, you know, it's never like you arrive and then it's all done. Anytime you ever arrive in that story is when you go into a box and you're done, right? So it's just a daily, you know, improvement. Yeah. Well, well it's so fascinating how you can feed the body, but you can also feed the mind. There's one of the, the scientists I've got here, uh, David Perlmutter, Dr. David Perlmutter, brain maker. Mm. Uh, with a big piece of um, broccoli, broccoli. On the front. there you go the power of gut microbes to heal and protect your brain for life yeah. uh he wrote a book on grain brain as well and the, the problems with oh yeah and things like that that's a good book yeah yeah but of course the 18 year old me wouldn't have known any of this stuff about oh. how i actually need to eat certain foods to feed my brain but did uh, we know that back then? That's the thing. I think it's no. kind of new, isn't it? Last 10, 20 years, yeah, it's changing, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. And this is what's so encouraging for me for, uh, uh, you know, I, I want to die young at a ripe old age where my health span matches my lifespan because I've seen too yeah. many people, their health span ended mm. 15 years before they finally miserably died of yeah. various different horrible. illnesses, which were horrible. And of course, not only mm. horrible for the individual, but for all the families carers, who are looking yeah. after them, the carers, and seeing your loved one deteriorating mm. because they hadn't looked after a bit of exercise to get out of a chair and keep mm. the muscles, like the queen kept the muscles going in. Mm. She was riding horses until the end. My, my father's twin must be about uh, 92 now. And she wow. goes, Jonathan, I'm really annoyed. They've stopped me riding my horse. <laughs> oh, why was riding her horse? What was she? Riding? I like that. The fighting spirit, though. Yeah, it's like, that's right. Yeah. She was, and she still drives. The car's got a few yeah. dents down the side. She lives in Cornwall. Auntie Pauline, if you're listening, which I don't know where you see are. the other car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's the other car. Very narrow lanes, and she goes for it. She's really going <laughs> on. But she gets up and she walks, and she, you know, just if anybody's only just like walking twice a day, get a dog. Like yeah. there's a, there's well, she's independent, though. That's important, he's, isn't it? He's, he's she's independent. Yeah. She's doing, she's not confined. You see that. I mean, my grandmother, so from my dad's side, they were farmers. And then when they retired from the farm, this is in Yorkshire, they um, bought a nursery, a plant nursery, you know, like growing and selling plants. So it was like farming again. So it was huge. It was a great place as a kid to explore and play in. And then when they sold that, they moved to like this tiny little flat, this apartment. And then I think after about that, three years later, she died. She was like, but she did die. I mean, you know, in, I think she died at 92. So it was 89 when they sold it. But they were like super active every day, getting up. And then, you know, they would go out into town and they would have a little stall in town. They would take their like, you know, their little pansies <laughs> and their chrysanthemums and sell them. You know, and as soon as all that stopped and they kind of retreated into the apartment, 
it changed everything and they just deteriorated so fast mentally i saw it as well which is like really disturbing yeah well, well you raised a question when we were chatting before as we prepared for this Graham. what has death being touched by death taught us both about the importance of health what's yeah. what's your thoughts oh uh, unbelievable i think you you never really think about it until it happens right it's always there that your parents were always there your loved ones were always there and then suddenly you have to it raises very big questions and you realize how fragile everything is jonathan that's what i think about health it's very fragile hmm. that you know the people that do pass away often they weren't the ones like you say who were sort of abusing or you know like they were taking their health for granted they sometimes were pretty healthy they didn't sort of abuse their food and their you know their lifestyle um and they just you know they just went and i think that kind of teaches us that it's not just health i don't think about long living but living well like you say i think that's the big part of it it's like okay i can't control that whether or not you know like my mother she got um gbm like stage five or four or five which is probably one of the lowest survival rate cancers brain cancer and the the uh neurosurgeon said that she you know the survival rate beyond one year after diagnosis was less than five percent well you can imagine that it was just like okay that's it you're done now uh, when i look at that i mean she was pretty healthy when she got to that point but what that taught me was that actually i can't i could get that i can't control that mm. Uh, mm. but what i can control is to live well and to you know health isn't just about making it to 92 it's about enjoying it and and living and living to its full I think that's so important. And I think you're exactly right. And I'm really sorry about uh, what happened to your mother. It, it, it's, it's tragic when it happened. Um, my, my own seeing her have a stroke and then she deteriorated. She should have died, but they, she'd been uh, unconscious for some hours when they found her. And my brother Graham said in a way it would have been kinder had fate been that no one found her because mm. she then had a, a quite a difficult time paralyzed down half her body doubly incontinent and she just wanted to die having mm. seen so many people and cared for so many others and visited them in nursing homes now she was the one that people were visiting and she wasn't having an awful lot of fun which is raises this topic of euthanasia and you know should it mm. be allowed I mean I I'm sorely tempted when the time comes to head off to Switzerland. Um, mm. But of course, they're not making it easy if you decide that, that you want to not be a burden on your family. But then again, how do you allow mm. people who have a mental health problem and think they want to kill themselves or get... get um, mm. So you have to be of sound mind. I think it's, it's a fascinating area. But I, I just want to come on to the topic of stoicism, which mm. links to what you said. And it links to the Queen. that People described that she had a very strong faith in her case, it was the Church of England, and she was head of the Church of England. She lived that way, but it was based on many of the Stoic philosophies. Mm. And, and as you know, I love the Daily Stoic and, and um, try and live as a Stoic with a good life and a good death. Now I'm dying every day, but I am going to control the controllables. And what can I control? I can control my thoughts and I control my actions. Now, I can't control whether I get some rare disease or like my brother David, who died within 10 weeks, that, that he would he would have a, a very metastatic cancer, which spread through his whole body and, and had probably been in him for a year before they found him. Hmm. Can't, can't do anything about that. But what I can do is what I eat, what I put into my body and, you know, the, the drinks I have. And we've discussed the fact that 
pretty much I've gone teetotal, non-alcohol, apart from some very rare occasions to celebrate. Um, but it, it's just, it's like that decision about when you make a decision that you don't drink, it's really easy. Mm. And then, then you have to always bring it back in if you are going to. But but it's when you do, or do I do it, don't I? You know, Or do I train today or don't I? So I think for all of us, you and I have practiced this, having a discipline and a routine. And a I think the consistency yeah. is what seems to work well. What you eat, when you move, good amount of sleep, deep, REM, light sleep, which we'll talk about mm. next month. Um, breathing, your mindfulness and, and, and doing some breath work. Uh, meditation, uh, yoga, and, and and prospering with the connection socially you have yeah. and, a, and a meaningful job. Um, should we I have like that word prospering? Prospering. Yeah. Yeah. Should we have a look at our, our our? Remember, we always revisit our role models. We do. Yeah. Are, are they, are they? Here's the question, though, Jonathan. Do they have apart from the Queen? Obviously, of that list, I don't think a lot of them lived. Long, yeah. But I guess we're, we're challenging the idea of long life and saying that health is more than just long life, isn't it? It's more like a prosperous life. Yeah. And and, and someone said to me, I, you know, I was saying that it's really tragic. My father was killed before his time, age 33. And, and they said, no, actually, your father lived his whole life. He yeah. lived fully his whole life. It just happened to be 33 years. Yeah. He was a good man. He saved the lives of two other people. So they lived. Mm because he as commanding officer chose to die in their place or get them out, yeah. but he wasn't safe. So I think living your whole life on purpose, not by accident, yeah. not off purpose, or being one of those grumpy old Victor Meldrew, miserable gits <laughs> live to late in life and bemoaning everybody, berating everybody. But that is their purpose. To, their purpose is to do it out of spite. <laughs> 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 their purpose now is to berate people. Yeah, I think so. But <laughs> of your leaders, you had Robert Kennedy, um, yeah, Mark assassinated. assassinated. Yeah. Uh, then what happened to uh, Mr. Honda? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. So Bill so Gates is Honda. still around. Steve yeah, Jobs he's still died. Right. Steve Jobs died of cancer Early. before his time. Tim Cook's still yeah. around. Honda was 85, if anybody's interested, which I okay, is not bad for his generation. Died in 91, born in 1906. Yeah. Considering he lived through the war as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So so mm. I think a number of those we don't know how long they would have lived because yeah. they, they were their lives were cut short, like my father's. Um Ooh. that's my dog. How we part she having your dog's <laughs> demanding some attention. Oh, or maybe wants to contribute. Hello. Hello. But um yeah, we talked about uh Queen Elizabeth. Diana yeah. died in a car crash. Oprah is still around. She's um understands a lot about uh, health lobby. Florence Nightingale and Sir Ernest Shackleton, they I think they yeah. I think they lived reasonably well. Shackleton lived right. in whale blubber. Uh, <laughs> Not until his final days, though. I think he probably had enough of that then. I think he had. Um, Marcus Aurelius died relatively young. He was quite ill towards yeah. the end. Colin Powell and, uh, died recently, but quite a long yeah. life. Fit, yeah. Kept himself fit. General Lord Dannett still um, going on strong. Uh, and Barack Obama, who, who he and his wife um, tried to change the White House garden so it had more healthy foods in, but they got a bit of a mm. kickback to that, I think not kickback that sounds like they've been paid but a, a bit of a pushback um mm. and 
but they all live, I guess, on purpose. They've lived a fulfilling life. Yes. Like you say, they've lived their whole life. They will do. We know yeah. that. And I feel that that's probably the most important thing here, isn't it? Better that than to live out the days, you know, feeling some negative emotions towards other people or regretting their choices. Yeah, yeah. I, I, so I think, I think there's this lovely mix with all these people we mentioned, with ourselves, with our own relations, that that control the controllables. There's some things you can control mm. uh, quite a lot, more than people give. They go, oh, it's in my genes, you know, my mm. my, my my relation, they died of um, uh, type 2 diabetes or diabetes. You know, we've all yeah. got diabetes. We're all going to no point. Die. Nothing yeah. I can do. No point. So is that Well, that's of, like crossing the road without looking, isn't it? It's yeah, it's victimhood. Right? It's victimhood as well. And then yeah. you go, nothing I can do. So I'll just, I'll just drink a lot, eat everything, not exercise, be a couch potato and, uh, and keep the NHS busy for years with all yeah. this food I have to take, the, um, the medicine I have to take. But I think that, that you can be purposeful in your life, but there may mm. be some things you and everybody goes, oh, look, I know Mark and Mark was super fit and he ate all these things and he trained every day and he yep. got knocked off his bicycle and killed. That's right. Yeah, we yeah, all hear yeah. that. As soon as you tell them that you're cycling or you're training. Yeah. Oh, it's kind yeah. of like, it's I an excuse, somebody. isn't it? Yeah. It justifies why they shouldn't be doing it. Because actually what they're saying is that there's no point that they should be doing. It. It's not going to, you know, why do that when the chances of being, you know, your the roulette wheel will spin them, it might land on you, right? Mm. Mm. It's an excuse. Yeah. It, it's, it's excusitis, as somebody wants But it's say. about as rubbish as the other one, which is, like, oh, yeah, I, you know, I, um, Ethel lived to 102 and she smoked 20 a day, right? That's right. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, that my, one. Oh, yeah. My, I, I, I must tell this one. Um, it, it's, a, it's Keith I, Richards. <laughs> very tragic. My, my, my mother-in-law was a real character, Marguerite, and uh, uh, she, she had uh, uh, cancer in a, in a difficult part of the body. And uh, after she came out, having had the operation, she, I was keeping her company and steady on her feet because she was a bit wobbly on her, her feet in the mid seventies. There, there's, you know, Prince Charles roaring around the place. You know, she was a similar age, but um, life had not been kind to her, heart disease, and lung disease, and then the cancer and the brain disease. But she was having a fag, and I was going, Marguerite, you know, you've just had an operation for cancer. Don't you think you should give up? She said, Jonathan. I don't smoke out of my ass. It's not a problem. Why should I give up? And I go, oh dear, whenever. <laughs> and, and, and I remember a doctor, in, a doctor in Ireland told me that you've been going so long, you might as well carry on. It'll never make a difference, Marguerite. Carry on, have a good time. That's and right. Go, I've heard that. It's just like from these some family who, friends who would right. say, oh, the damage is already done, love. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is, as soon as you stop on any of these things, and you change your habits, you're increasing your life uh, span immediately. Well, it's averages, though, isn't it? It's the, it's the law of numbers, averages, that you'll get away with it. But, you know, it's just like, again, crossing the road. You might get away with it 99 times, but on the 100th one. Mm. You know, you're playing charts with stuff that is unnecessary, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's exactly that. It's exactly that. I'm just reaching for my Apple Watch to put it back on my wrist, having charged, yeah. charged it up. No, it's a, you need to get a, a better watch that doesn't run out of juice too often. But what about organizations? Think about Apple. Uh, yeah. What about organizations that have a healthy culture? Mm. But we've made it on, on eating and moving, but also in those, as we've talked about, brain maker, brain health. So yeah. do, do these 
can we think of organizations that create a psychologically safe environment mm. for people to be in without being too snowflake like and going oh don't mm. worry about it darling i'm sorry he shouted at you he's the nasty man won't do that again and yeah and no mummy will look after you so we don't want people to be completely mollycoddled yeah. but at the same time we need a healthy environment where people can be of their best physically fit mentally fit and and they they the work environment is healthy and safe mm. what's your thoughts yeah, this is a very interesting area, Jonathan. A lot of focus is, a lot of conversation has been about mental health at work in the last couple of years, especially. A number of reasons. One is because of the pandemic and work from home and stress generally that has affected people. And secondly, now people are exercising choice about where they want to work. And a big part of that equation is the safety, psychological safety and the mental health impact on that they'll have working in that organization so it's almost become a part of the employer brand is whether or not this is a stressful organization so we're starting to see it now and we're starting to see organizations check themselves i won't name organizations specifically but check their behavior and how they talk and almost communicate externally as well i'll give you an example like without naming the organization so let's start with a negative is that working with one company and they let's say i send them an email and there's something wrong with the email and that happens to anybody anybody makes mistakes right but the response is to really bark at me you know like really lay into it and it was just an honest mistake you know i copied somebody in the email by mistake that was it and they just went crazy then i thought about it and reflected on it and thought why is this person being so nasty and what like why are they stressing me out because that was very stressful and then i realized actually that's probably what it's like inside their organization every single day that mm. you know you treat if you want to deliver great customer service the number one rule is to treat your people well first because they will then treat the customers as you treat them if you're like barking at your people and then telling like look after the customer they're not going to do that because they're only going to reflect that DNA of the organization on how they service. So I'll put it to you that every single brand organization we interact with, where you have great service, where they really treat you well with dignity, with empathy as a human being, and, you know, maybe forgive you for being a human being that actually, I tell you, that doesn't lie in the handbook or the training that lies in how the leaders are treating their people. And you can't fake that. It's like Stephen Covey's farm. You can't cheat the farm. Mm. Mm. Beautiful quote. And, and, and the counterbalance to the story, you and I'm sorry you had that experience, was I did exactly the same thing, and I'll name the company, to Remitly Global, uh, where we've had a few of their good leaders on the podcast. And it was Anker Sinner, who was the CTO. And it was about one of his people. And it was how we were going to develop them. It wasn't, it wasn't bad. It's was just we were planning on how we were going to help them. And, and I didn't mean to include the person who he'd had in the original email to me. They were included in it. And uh, I think it was uh, something that was not wrong, but, but it, it just I'd rather he had it and then he could share it with the person rather than the person knowing directly. And I just was appalled by it. I thought, oh, God, you know, no, no, I can't. I can't believe I sent the lead spotted it. Said, you, have, yeah, you haven't sent it to him, too, have you? I went, yes, I have. Oh, no. And I wrote straight to Anchor. And I said, Anchor, I'm really sorry. It was a mistake on my part. I'm so embarrassed. And he went, Jonathan, 
it's a teachable moment. We make, we all make mistakes. Uh, don't worry about don't it. Worry. That's okay. Yeah. And that to me was such a sign of him, this idea of mm. teachable moments. What have you learned? What are you going to do differently? I don't and, understand. So we and and thank you. I, I, it doesn't understand. doesn't understand what you're saying. Yeah, the teachable moment. Siri doesn't understand the teachable moment. Yeah. Um, it's going to speak to me again. I'm sure like the dog. Arr, um, <laughs> but I, I do think that you learn so much, mm. not from what people say they're going to do, but from the way they treat me. Yeah. And so I, I said to one person, the way you are shouts out so shouts out so loudly. I can't hear what you're saying. Just the, the yeah. way you are, who the way you're being. We're human beings, not human doings. And and I do think the way we treat people, like the, the way the Queen treated people, so mm. they felt so special. My minute and a half, two minutes I had with her getting my my award, she made me feel like I was the only person in the room who mattered. And she right. did that to the next person and the next person. And that is a gift. But it's not mm. impossible for us to learn it, is it? I, no. I, one other thing, and I'll pass it back to you for us to um, uh, think about books as we come mm. to a few minutes. Um, you've reminded me of Viktor Frankl's book. We talked about Man's Search for Meaning, Man's search for meaning in that meaning and purpose part of mm. the last episode but victor talked about two things he said we have a stimulus and we have a response to the stimulus and mm. people think the two are joined they're literally there's no there's no uh there's no light between the two stimulus happens mm. uh, someone shouts to me i had to respond back and shout at them it's, no, it's not my fault they did that i responded but actually he he pulls the two apart and he puts this big block in the middle and it, it says choice between yeah. stimulus and response, we have choice. So, you know, the, the, back to the discipline again, you know, the, 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 the pizza comes in, everybody else is having some pizza. I go, actually, no, I choose not to. Thank you. I'll pass. And, you know, I'll go and, I'll go and make something else. I've got some salmon and some salad in the kitchen, some quinoa or some, you know, couscous. I'll have that. Um, and, and it's a choice. But people often think, oh, I couldn't help myself. It's just mm. I had to have... Mm another glass of wine or drink 18 pints of lager because, you know, my mates were drinking 18 pints of lager, uh, but we always are at choice. Do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That, that choice, that's what it comes down to happiness, right? Happiness is the ability to exercise choice and mm. why people suffer in the workplace is because they can't exercise choice. They don't get to decide how they want yeah. to do something. That's the key. So we're, we're happiest when we have choice and when we don't have choice, we're unhappy. I love that. In, in our decisions. I love so, that. Happiness is about exercising choice. Yeah. So true. And the ability to exercise, even if you don't exercise it. Yes, the ability. It's having the ability. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's in your power. You, you can choose mm -hmm. to do it or not. Uh, what about books? Uh, we, 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 you know, obviously, we're both, we love this topic. We've read widely yeah. and deeply. If, if you were to pick one book, what would yep. it be? Okay. I'll pick one. There's so many, and I'm sure there are you've got a list as long as your arm when it comes to books about health and wellness i'm gonna because of the time i'm conscious that we've only got a few minutes to go i'm gonna pick only one how to be idle i may have actually mentioned right. this before but it's by tom hodgkinson who used to be the interestingly titled editor of the idler magazine and mm -hmm. i find it very interesting it's very stoic and it's very Buddhist Zen, like in its approach, but it's a homage really to the small enjoyments in life, whether it's our fishing or sleeping 
or taking an afternoon walk because I think us, you and I, Jonathan, ambitious A-types don't think about the importance of these things or taking it slow, the beauty in taking it slow, the happiness in taking it slow. And, you know, that sort of almost being bored is actually good for us because we're not striving. There is the striving in life can actually lead to a lot of unhappiness. So it's being, you know, that ability to step out of things. And he actually talks about there's a whole sort of culture of flannery. So there's a word flaneur, which basically means loafer, <laughs> you know, and it, it, you know, people like Baudelaire, Proust, Oscar Wilde were great flanners. These were people who wandered with, you know, no real reason. They just kind of walked around the town and just looked at things and saw what was going on and observed it and commented on it. And, but there's a real beauty in it. It's almost like meditation. Like it, it doesn't have to have a name. It doesn't have to have a, like a goal. And it's like an acceptance and, you know, letting go of that striving. And I find that for me has been like, okay, I spent all my life striving, but now here's somebody saying it's actually okay not to do that as well. Have time out of that. And it's okay to think other kind of thoughts, which aren't about, you know, objective driven, you know, learning to live is learning to let go. And mm-hmm. that's really the lesson, the teaching moment for me in like understanding what life is all about is really letting go of these things, which may be making me unhappy. So my recommendation, How to Be Idle by Tom Hodgkinson. It's a fun read. That's, that's a really good one. Uh, thank you. And this just in the last few moments, there's so many I recommend, but um, uh, I think Lifespan by Dr. David Sinclair, this is the one about mm. what supplements and things we can have to help our life be considerably longer so our lifespan matches our health span. Um, And so really um, next month, Graham, we're gonna go on to the second part of uh, health quotient about sleep. Um, I will have done my sleep study by then at the Cambridge- Oh, I'm looking forward to uh, that. Cambridge Hospital, where the uh, health, the the sleep and respiration center, the raw pathway. Um, I've got my feedback this week. and also um, breathing and mm. mindfulness and, and prospering. I think we can, we can talk about that. Um, we'd encourage you all to, um, if you want to send us some information at jonathanperks.com, go to the website, there's lots of resources for you there and pickal.com for, for Graham's as well. And um, so do send us some stuff. Uh, we've got um, some questions for next week and some books to recommend on sleep uh, which are really, really good. Some, some great stuff there. So finally, Graham, let me appreciate a quality about you and you can have a final appreciation if you wish about me as we always end everything. Uh, my appreciation is just the banter that we can have on this topic, which you clearly have practiced. You find it a very interesting topic. And um, also, I think your humanity and humility and generosity that you, you give ground, give space, it's not about you. It's about helping people who are listening around the world. So that's what I appreciate about you. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate that appreciation. About yourself, I have very much enjoyed this journey. I see as a fellow kindred spirit on this journey. So I appreciate the fact that you're very open and honest and authentic about it. And you've shared this journey with all your listeners as well. And I really am appreciating and I will appreciate more next time the results of your sleep study. You are an experimenter. You are an astronaut in that sense in the world of health and wellness. So we are going to learn what you discover on this journey. So I appreciate the fact that you're doing that and put yourself out there. So 
yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Okay, I look forward to Dr. Oscar's feedback uh, on on how I slept or didn't sleep and what's going on in our bodies. It's a fascinating area. So, Graham, thank you, and um, I wish all our listeners every success in keeping yourself healthy and in putting into practice some of those things about what you eat and how you move and keep yourself healthy. Thank you, guys. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you gonna do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.